As you stand in body or spirit, let us go before God's word. Very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have reciting what he called the great uh, commandment and what the Jews have called the Shema from the first word, which means listen. And so I'll uh, invite you to follow me in Hebrew and then we'll join in English together. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture this morning is the story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery. This is the eighth chapter of John, beginning in the first verse. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I went to early um, grades of elementary school in Florida. And so I remember um, uh, very early on when we had to do uh, air raid uh, drills during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was kind of a scary thing. Uh, the siren would go off and, and we would uh, get under our desk and the teacher uh, would instruct us. And it was hard to understand or explain. All I remember is it was scary. But I got to tell you, it got a whole lot scarier the next year when I got promoted because I got in one particular teacher's classroom and not having an assistant, occasionally she had to leave the classroom to go to the principal's office or run an errand or get something. And so she devised something even scarier than Russian missiles in Cuba. And what she devised was this system called taking names. Ever been there? She would leave and appoint someone to be in charge. And, and, uh, and if you stood up and got out of your desk, they'd write your name on the board. If you spoke and uh, you were supposed to be quiet, your name got written on the board. And heaven forbid, if you threw an eraser or a pencil and your name was on the board. And, and so that was always a scary time because it seemed, it seemed so arbitrary. You know, is a flinch getting out of my desk? How do I know? And the teacher said, now when I come back to the room, I'm going to deal with those whose names are on the list and it will affect their recess. That was scary. But you know, it was scarier when I actually had to be the name taker because talk about a way to not win friends and influence people. Yeah, what do you do? Do you write it at the risk of a relationship that may be broken for quite some time? I never have like this whole name-taking business. 
You know, it surprised me to realize that in history, people have been taking names for a while too. Some of you may remember um, uh, Joseph McCarthy from your history books or uh, in the 1950s, and he, had, he took down names of people who were supposed communists, and he had his, his blacklist, especially of Hollywood actors and actresses and, and producers. And then, of course, a couple decades later, the president of the United States, apparently in his Oval Office, had an enemies list that was later revealed. I don't know. I'm really not a fan of that. So I was kind of surprised to find out, do you know they take names in the Bible? Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the wonderful prophet, chapter 17, verse 13 says, I will write in the dust the names of those who turn away from the Lord, the source of living water. Jeremiah's taking names? Can it get worse than that? It can. Because apparently in the story this morning from the gospel of John, many people believe that Jesus is taking names. Then when he bends down to write in the dust, he's writing the names of the accusers. Well, let's think about that. Let me set the table for you. Um, What happens here in the early part of the gospel of John, you may see footnotes in your Bible. Some think it might be out of place. It belongs somewhere else. But at any rate, where it stands right now, this takes place during the festival of Sukkot, which we're familiar with in this church. That's where you set up a tent. So people would do tent camping in Jerusalem, those who live there and those who are visiting. And not only would they camp in tents as a way to remind themselves of how God took care of them in the wilderness, they would pray daily for eight days for God. God to give them water, and they would read passages like Jeremiah 17 about living water, and they talk about water, and then on the eighth day, they'd have a major celebration asking God, begging God for water, and well, they also did a bit of drinking. It seems that the Feast of Tabernacles, as it was practiced in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, was sort of like fiesta on steroids. And so tent camping and drinking and one thing led to another and apparently a woman ends up in the wrong tent with a man who is not her husband. And so some men capture her and they bring her before Jesus. And we're told in the Bible that this is a trap. And we know it's a trap because they don't bring the man with her. And in the Bible, you're supposed to have the woman and the man And the trap is this, they're going to say to Jesus, or they ask Jesus, hey, you know, in the Bible, Moses said we should stone a woman caught in adultery. True enough, but by Jesus' day, it was the sentence uh, was rarely, if ever, executed, pardon the pun. And so if Jesus says, no, let her go, then they would say, well, you're arguing with Moses? You're bigger and better than Moses? And so they would trap him that way. And if he said, yeah, kill her, then he gets in trouble with the Romans because the Romans did not allow their subject people to carry out the um, uh, sentence of execution. That's why later the Jews will need Pontius Pilate to uh, carry out the sentence on Jesus. So either way, he's going to have the people against him because they love Moses or the Romans against him. And it's a trap. And so what Jesus does in the trap is interesting. He bends down and he writes on the ground. Now, what's he writing? We don't know for sure. There are several possibilities. One is he's not writing anything. He's just doodling on the ground, just sort of calling time out, giving these people a pause. 
I mean, have you ever wished you could uh, give somebody a pause before they said what they were going to say or tweet before what they tweeted or hit send on the email? Jesus is giving them a pause in this theory to kind of think about what's going on. That's possible. Another theory is Jesus is right because he bends down to write twice. At the first time, he writes the commandment that the woman is accused of breaking, do not commit adultery. And then when he stands back up and then bends down to write again, some people uh, postulate that he's writing all the commandments that her accusers are breaking by bringing her forward without the man. They're bearing false witness because that has to do with the due legal process. That's the ninth commandment. Could be they're coveting because they're taking um, uh, this privilege that belongs only to the Romans. Could be they are stealing her reputation by uh, by parading her in front of this crowd could be they are about to commit murder itself. And so some say Jesus is writing a whole long list of the commandments that they are breaking at the moment. Could be. Another possibility is this. In the Roman world, which would have ruled Jerusalem, before a judge in a case uh, uh, rendered the sentence, the judge would first write it down in front of them. He would write it down and then read it. And so some believe that Jesus is writing down the sentence for this woman who's been caught and the sentence would obviously be acquitted and then bends down to write again and write the sentence of everybody else who's accused her and the sentence would be, or the judgment would be guilty. That's possible. And then of course, as I mentioned earlier, because they've been talking about living water and Jeremiah has been quoted during the week, Some people believe that Jesus is acting out Jeremiah 17, that he's bending down the dust and he's taking names and he's writing the names of all the guilty. Don't really know which it was, but whatever it was, it had the right result and effect because Jesus announced, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone and nobody picks one up to throw it. And one by one, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, which is a biblical way. You can find this in Ezekiel 9 of kind of exiting a situation you're not supposed to be in. Um, They leave. They leave. Without sin, commit the first stone. That's interesting because you wonder, does that mean they've never sinned in their whole life? Well, most people believe that's not really it. What it means is probably one of two things, which is to say, if you believe you can do this without sinning, If you believe you could throw a stone and kill this woman and that God would approve of you, go for it. The other interpretation is, in in the Hebrew Bible, sin is a little different than uh, when we get the New Testament. In the New Testament, when Paul and others talk about sin, sometimes the Greek word is a word that means you've missed a target. You've probably heard this before. But like there's a big target and you shot an arrow and you went off to the side and that word, would it's a word picture for sin. But in the Hebrew, that wasn't a word picture for sin. The word picture for sin was you broke a relationship. Your relationship with God or with others is broken or strained. And so it could be Jesus is saying to everyone there, all right, those of you who have perfectly clean relationships and you've never had a problem in any of your relationships, you pick up the rock. And they know that's not who they are. And they put it down. Hard to know, but they do leave. You know, what's fascinating to me is not what Jesus wrote in the dirt. What's fascinating is that Jesus wrote in the dirt. Well, you might say, well, he didn't have a chalkboard with him, you know, to write on. That's the only place he could write. 
Could be. But let's think about dirt for a minute. Can you think of anything in the Bible that was made from dirt? Anybody? Yeah, that'd be us. We were made from dirt. Some people believe that when he writes in the dirt, he's reminding us, look, all of us come from the same stuff. We have more in common than we have that separate us. Sure, some people behave in, in, uh, in manners that aren't appropriate, say things or do things. There are differences, but by and large, most of us share more uh, than the things that differ from us. And at some point, we get to emphasize the differences more than we emphasize the commonalities. And maybe Jesus is bringing them back. I think I've told you the, the story before, but it was the highest holy day um, several years ago in Judaism uh, called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So the distinguished rabbi climbed the pulpit in the, um, in the temple, in their synagogue, and, but he climbed the pulpit with a nine-month-old child in his arm. So he got ready to deliver the sermon, and he started, and the child grabbed the microphone. And people kind of first, <laughs> and then they smiled. And then the child moved on to the microphone as the rabbi continued to talk and took the rabbi's paper, his script, and began to like separate the papers. And people sort of smiled to themselves. And then a minute later, the, the nine-month-old took the rabbi's glasses and snatched them right off his face. And everybody could no longer contain it on this most solemn and holy day of the year. They all laughed. And the rabbi stepped out of the pulpit with the baby and said, He's cute. He's a baby. You'd forgive him for this, right? And everybody nods their head. And then the rabbi said, at what age will you no longer forgive him? When he's seven? When he's 14? When he's 21? At what age will you no longer forgive him and you'll focus on the actions rather than on him and his heart? It's an interesting question. Sometimes the dirt, I think, reminds me that Jesus wanted to say, look, there's not that big a difference between the woman, the man with the woman, and their accusers. But the other thing about dirt is this. Did you know you couldn't write on the Sabbath unless you wrote in dirt? Because they considered dirt to be impermanent. Anything you wrote, like, you know, somebody could step on it or the wind could blow it and it would go away. And so writing in the dirt was allowed because it was a way of saying, well, whatever you write isn't going to stay there very long anyway. You ever built a sandcastle at the beach? You're not going to find it there normally a week later. Things happen. Things in the sand and the dirt, they disappear. And I'm wondering if what Jesus was reminding the woman and the accusers is people sin. They make mistakes but they don't have to stay there forever. The early church used to talk about sin like this. They said, our sins, no matter how many, no matter how terrible, are like a pebble. And God's love is like the ocean. And our sin is as a pebble in the ocean. And the water just carries out the pebble. The impermanence of our sin and the great forgiveness of God may have been demonstrated when he bent down to write. So here's my take on the whole thing. The woman understands clearly that she's been forgiven and she gets a new start. 
But here's the other deal. I think the accusers understand that their names, even if Jesus wrote them in the ground, were not staying there, that they could be forgiven as well, and they could walk away without having cast a stone, and they could start their life over again, just as this woman started her life over again. Have you ever done something you wish you hadn't done? Have you ever not done something and you wish you would have acted? Doesn't have to stay with you forever. Um, there's a Facebook site for people that went to high school with, uh, with me and with my wife. And every once in a while, um, we'll read on that Facebook site that one of our classmates is, uh, has passed away. A few years ago, my wife read a name of somebody and it triggered a memory in my mind. And the memory was of junior high. And the memory was of a boy's locker room. And the memory was of an overweight teenage boy being taunted, humiliated, and embarrassed by a group of kids pointing out the imperfections in his physique. I was there. Now, I wasn't part of the group, but I didn't do one thing to stop that group. And every once in a while I think about it, not monthly, not even yearly, but every once in a while I think, I wish I could go back. I wish I could have done it differently. Who knows what happened to him with his self-esteem rocked like that. Who knows what directions he took. He went to another school. I don't know where he ended up. Who knows? But part of what the story tells me today is I don't have to live with that image permanently of what I did not do in my life. That for the women caught in adultery and for the men who would stone her, there is hope and there is possibility to be forgiven and to start again. I'm reminded that when God looks at our life It's different the way we look at it. Oftentimes we look at our life or I look at somebody else's life and all I can do is judge and see the moment. I only see like the the one frame in a sense in the movie and I judge them by where I am. I judge myself or where they are in this moment. But God has this picture and God sees the whole movie and sees it all, and judges and sees differently from me. And I also think sees the possibilities that this one still frame, no matter how bad, does not have to define the rest of the movie. John Claypool said it some years ago, I believe it still to be true today, that our God and Jesus Christ is much less interested in what we have done and much more interested in who we may yet become.